Welcome to the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I am your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 215, where we're talking about Behind That Locked Door by George Harrison. Before we get started, I want to remind you all to swing by herohabit.com to get all the information you want about this podcast, including the 214 shows that came before this, um, information about all of our social media, and a way to contribute to this podcast, which will unlock special bonuses for you as they um, as they come out and also help keep this recording. Um, so that's a herohabit.com. At the top of the page, there's a button for podcasts, and you can follow everything right there. Today, we're talking about Behind That Locked Door by George Harrison, released November 27th, 1970 on the album All Things Must Pass. And the song was written in 1968 and was pitched as a possible track during the Get Back sessions where it was rejected. Um, they rehearsed it. They did a fair amount of rehearsing, but it got rejected. And I think it would have been a cool track for the Beatles um, had they done it for Abbey Road. I'm not sure it works for Get Back, only because of how it ends up turning out on All Things Must Pass. I mean, if they would have taken it a different direction, who knows? But I think Abbey Road with a similar style of orchestration and that loud to soft back and forth I think it would have fit in really cool there with some of the rockers that that album has. So far, when talking about All Things Must Pass, the album, we've talked about two backing bands for this album. There's the group that would eventually become Derek and the Dominoes, and then there's the group that included Ringo and Billy Preston and Klaus Foreman. This track, though, may be one of the biggest lineups of the whole LP because it includes all the guys that would be in Derek and the Dominoes, Eric Clapton, Carl Rattle, Jim Gordon, Bobby Whitlock, all those guys, as well as the members of Badfinger. So that's two full bands backing them up on this. Plus, if that wasn't enough, Gary Wright and Gary Brooker, and then Bobby Keys and Jim Price on horns. It's a lot of musical power in one room to back up George, who's also on vocals, electric guitar, and slide guitar. So I don't know if the other people in the band were um, doubling up, but George has got at least two guitar parts there, plus two full backing bands. It's just crazy. It's the penultimate track of the first disc of the LP and follows the quiet country waltz of Behind That Locked Door. Wait, what what song are we doing here? We're doing Let It Down. I wrote down the wrong song. We're doing Let It Down. Behind the Locked Door was the one we did last week. Um, all that other information is still true. I just I think I said that we were covering Behind That Locked Door today. This song comes on after that song. And that song, like we talked about a couple days ago, it's a quiet waltz, uh, very country influence with the, the lap steel guitar. And then we have this attack on our ears. That is the introduction to Let It Down. The intro, which reappears later on the track as the chorus, um, is a prime example of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. And again, I wouldn't change a single note of this intro, but it may have been a bit more musically interesting if you could hear what each individual instrument was playing as opposed to being attacked by the sum of the parts. Right? A little less reverb. That's all I'm asking. A little bit drier mix. If those horns are really attacking instead of being kind of just felt in the whole mix and we can hear George's slide guitar screaming over the top, but it's tough to hear because it's getting drowned out by all this echo. And especially when you've got three, four, five different guys playing rhythm guitar on this, um, that's a lot of notes coming at you that 
I'm totally fine with, but I would have liked it to be a little drier. If you listen to the demo of the song, it's actually surprising that the Beatles couldn't see its potential because the loud, soft aspect of it seems baked right into the song. And you'd think that both John and Paul would be chomping at the bit to put some backing vocals and some of those swooping bass lines on it. I mean, you can hear in the band's rehearsals for the song, though, that John just couldn't get his fingers around this chord progression, which we'll talk about later. And that's kind of surprising when you consider the crazy progressions he had been known to write. Um, but the song never went beyond rehearsals. They never tried to commit it to tape. They never really um, set it out. You know, it was never going to be included on the rooftop concert or anything like that. Speaking of bass, which I just did, um, I think this song has some of Carl Rattle's best playing on the album. Some of the little licks and turnarounds that he throws in there are really gorgeous and inventive, but they still sound like what a bass player should do. Right? So like, instead of just going like, you know, dun, 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 he'll be like, dun, 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 dee, dun, dun. Like he'll throw these little extra flourishes in there where it's like, yeah, a lesser bass player would have done a similar thing, but they wouldn't have done that. And he really lends an R&B vibe to the quiet verses because he's he's laying down a groove there that's really cool. And I think this is uh, of the songs that we assume he played bass on because it's not really a definitive uh, source for the instrumentation, the personnel of each song. But the songs that we think he's playing bass on, I think this is one of um, his finest moments. Rhythmically, this song sticks pretty well to standard 4-4 time. Even though there are some little jumps here and there that kind of give you the feeling that maybe it's changing to like a triplet meter, they're mostly syncopations and not actual shifts in meter like George uh, was known to do. Harmonically, though, this is a typical Harrison composition. I'm not even going to analyze this song on its harmonic structure because it is all over the place. It uses extended chords that most rock and rollers probably don't even know how to play on the guitar. And he never sticks to one key for very long, though for ease of publication, I'd write it in E. But there's going to be a lot of accidentals because he really doesn't stay there for long. So the verse of the song opens on an E major nine chord. Now, this can be confusing to talk about because when I say major, when I'm saying this chord, I'm not actually talking about the quality of the E chord. Right. I'm not. It's not the difference between E major and E minor um, because that's assumed by the absence of a minor. Right, so I could actually make an E minor major nine. Right, the the major in that chord applies to the extension of that chord, not to the bass one three five. I'm actually talking about the quality of the seventh, um, which is you're probably thinking that's not even mentioned in the chord name. You said E major nine, and now we're talking about seventh. So when you when you add chords or when you add notes to a chord, so your basic chord is one, three, five. If I got an E9, for example, I would have my basic one, three, five, and then I would also add the seven and the nine. Or an E11 would add the seven, nine, and the 11, right? So the assumption is that it's major, unless you're told it's minor. And the assumption is that if you are saying just E9, that every note between the regular notes and that nine are included, in this case, the seventh and the ninth. Now, there are ways to write where if I just wanted that ninth, you can write that, but that's that's different and it doesn't apply to this. So we'll talk about that another time. So um, what we have here 
is a standard E chord with a major seventh. That's where the major is, which in this case is D sharp, and then the ninth above that. So your notes are actually E, G sharp, B, D sharp, F sharp, which is the same as playing an E major chord and a B major chord on top of each other um, because B is the common note between both. It's the last note in the E chord, the first note in the B chord. So it's basically two chords on top of each other, two major chords on top of each other, and it gives you that real beautiful open sound. And the cool thing about this is this is, this is completely in the key of E, right? Even though it's this extended chord that's got two extra notes on it, by making that seventh major, um, all the notes in here appear in the key of E. So this is actually a very solid one chord in the key of E, but because of all these extensions, it kind of makes it a little bit more ambiguous because you have this kind of stack of notes. Um, so like I said, a lot of rockers will never play something like this. It's just not a chord you see very often in, in pop music. But George has anchored the entire verse to this chord, and then he breaks away for a moment to, ple to play a C-sus-2. And the sus two, which means suspended two, um, it means that instead of playing the third, which is, is establishes whether the chord is major or minor, right? Whatever that third is determines whether the chord is major or minor. You take that away and you play the two instead. So the C sus two is going to be C, D, and G instead of C, E, and G because D is the two of C. And you'll notice that all three of those notes are a half step away from three notes in the preceding E major nine. So really, this is more of a chromatic move than anything. Um, the C is a half step away from the B in the preceding chord. The D is a half step away from the uh, D sharp in the preceding chord. And the G is a half step away from the G sharp in the preceding chord. All right. So we've got two chords here now. The, the E uh, major nine, like I said, is is grounded in the key of E major. The C sus 2 is not grounded in the key of E major at all. There's not a single note in this chord that belongs in the key of G, or the key of E. Um, but he's using it more as chromatic movement. So then he goes back and forth with that for a bit before hitting an A sus 4. And the sus 4, just like the sus 2, it replaces the third with the fourth. So anytime you got these suspensions, it's affecting the, the third. Okay. And it's replacing a note. So a regular third is major. A flat third is minor. If you flat it again, it's a suspended two. If you raise it to the fourth, it's a suspended fourth, right? It all affects that middle note. Um, so in this case, we got an A sus four. That's a C. Oh, wait. Uh, and then he goes to a C, then an F sharp seven, an F major seven, and then an E seven. And he's using an E seven. Now, this isn't the same as an E major seven because the E seven should resolve to an A chord. It's the five, it's the dominant chord in the key of A. But to resolve um, to A is going to pull us out. It's going to be difficult to get back to that E major nine. So he just resolves to E major seven. And it's a it's called a deceptive cadence. When you have a chord that should resolve, you have a five chord that should resolve somewhere and it resolves anywhere but one, it's a deceptive cadence. Sorta. Because this is technically resolving to one, 
because we're in the key of E, but that's not where it should have gone. It should have gone to A. So it's a, I don't know, a double deceptive cadence. Half deceptive. I don't know what you would call that, but it's a cool, it's a cool cadence. And it just, it's one of those things like, you know, how sometimes he'll change keys to two keys that aren't really related to each other. And he does it just by doing it. You don't think about it too much for the chorus, which is the same as the intro. He hits an E chord, then an F sharp seven with an E in the bass in an F sharp seven. That seven is an E. Then E goes to an F major seven in that chord. That major seven is an E. Um, and then back to an E chord. So basically he's droning on an E for the entirety of the chorus. And then he's picked chords that can accommodate that drone. And all he's doing is he's going up one E to F sharp and then down a half step to F and then down a half step to E. So you're dun, 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 right? It's very, very close harmony. And that's all there is to it, really. Like I said, I can't really assign chord numbers to this since it's mostly atonal. Um, with very few definitive resolutions, but for all intents and purposes, we'll say it's an E major and that's it. It's not that there's a ton of chords. It's just they're weird chords that you don't see a ton in rock music. Unlike a lot of Harrison's songs, it's pretty clear he's talking about a woman for this one. There's not a lot of ambiguity between, you know, is he talking about God or his wife with lines like, let your hair hang all around me or I see your eyes are busy kissing mine. This is clearly about a woman. Where the debate seems to fall is whether it's about Patty, his wife. Because Harrison at that time was living with Patty and a second woman, and this particular affair actually blew up at the beginning of 1969. Now remember, this was written in 68. Um, And while the Beatles are working on the Get Back sessions, this whole thing blows up. And we discussed in a previous podcast that this drama at home was probably a major contributor to him walking out of those sessions. You know, if you've got a lot of drama at home and the drama at work is starting to pile up, it's real easy to just be like, you know what? I can't handle both of you, so I'm walking out of this one. But regardless of who it is written about, it is one of George's most overtly romantic lyrics. This is not a love letter to Krishna. And the contrast between the loud and the soft really demonstrates the conflicted passions better than any lyric could. which is cool. All in all, this track is a real gem on the album. And like I said, I wouldn't change a thing except the reverb. And uh, I wish the Beatles would have at least given it a proper try. Maybe we wouldn't have heard it till the anthology, like with Not Guilty. But it would have been cool if if they gave it a a legit try because I think, uh, you know, Paul's bass and John's backing vocals on this one could have sounded really cool. All right. That's all I got for this one. Again, swingbyherohabit.com. Find us on all the social medias. Join Hero Habit's new subreddit to get updated when these new episodes post and on all the other content we post there. And um, if you feel so inclined to throw five bucks our way to help keep this thing running smooth, um, you can do that there as well. All right, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening. Tell all your friends and leave a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to that allows five-star ratings and reviews. Take care.